Types in Hebrews Christ's deity enforced As already suggested, two qualifications are necessary if we are to read the epistle to the Hebrews intelligently. We need an adequate acquaintance with the typology of Scripture, and we must understand the position and thoughts of the Hebrew Christians who had been led to Christ under the tutelage of the divine religion of Judaism. That Christ came to found a new religion is a figment of Gentile theology. In the classical sense of the word religion, Judaism is the only divine religion the world has ever known, and Christ came not to destroy, but to fulfill it. As contrasted with Judaism, and in contrast also with the apostasy of Christendom, Christianity, I repeat, is not a religion, one, but a revelation and a faith. But the Hebrew Christians were in danger of regarding the coming of Messiah as merely an advance in a progressive revelation. God who had spoken by the prophets had now spoken in a still more authoritative way. It was a climax in the revelation, but that was all. They needed to learn that it was not merely a climax, but a crisis. For Christ was the fulfillment of the divine religion, and by the fact of his fulfilling it he abrogated it. In whole and in every part of it, that religion pointed to him. Its mission was to prepare men for his advent, and to lead them to him when he came. And now that he had come any turning back to the religion was in effect a turning away from Christ. Therefore is it that with such emphasis and elaboration Hebrews teaches us the divine glory of the Son of God, and the incomparable preeminence of his ministry in every aspect of it. For it is by way of contrast, rather than of comparison, that he is named, first with angels, and then with the apostle and the high priest of the Jewish faith. Therefore is it that, in a way which to us seems labored, the epistle unfolds the truth that the divinely appointed shrine, with its divinely ordered ritual, and all its gorgeous furniture living and dead, were but the shadows of heavenly realities, and that, with the coming of the Son of God, the morning of shadows was past, for the light that cast them was now in the zenith of an eternal noon. All this accounts for the many digressions by which the Apostle sought to reach the goal of his crowning exhortation in chapter 10, digressions due to prevailing ignorance and error. For in the Judaism of the Pharisees, as in the false cult of Christendom, a priest means a sacrificing priest an error which is not only anti-Christian, but which, as the Apostle declares in chapter 5:12, betrays ignorance of the rudiments of the first principles of the oracles of God. And deferring for the present any fuller notice of these digressions, let us now consider the wonderful words of that exhortation. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Hebrews 19 verses 19 to 22. To come, or draw near, is one of the key words of the epistle. To it occurs first in the exhortation of chapter 416, having a great high priest, let us draw near with boldness unto the throne of grace. As the tense of the verb indicates, this is not an act to be done once for all, as when a sinner comes to God for salvation, it is the habit of the true Christian, who is ever conscious of his need of mercy and grace. Still more plainly does this appear in chapter 725, where Christians are characteristically called, comers unto God, drawing near to him being their normal attitude and habit. And the man of faith is similarly designated in chapter 11,6. In the opening words of chapter 10, therefore, the worshipper is described as one who thus comes or draws near. And this same word is prominent in the exhortation of the 22nd verse. 
The figurative language here employed at the blood, the veil, the sprinkled heart, the washed body, so perplexing to Gentile exegesis, would be plain and simple to the Hebrew Christian, for it is the language of the typology of that divine religion in which he had been trained. The Israelite, as we have seen, set out upon his journey to the land of promise as one of a redeemed and holy people. But, being nonetheless a sinner, he was ever liable to fall, and though his sin did not put him back under either the doom or the bondage of Egypt, it necessarily barred his approaching the sanctuary. His exclusion, moreover, must have been permanent if there had been no provision for atonement. And if this was true in relation to a sanctuary of this world, how intensely true must it be for us who have to do with the spiritual realities of which that sanctuary was but a shadow? Therefore is it that in the teaching of Hebrews to make atonement three. For the sins of the people is given such prominence in enumerating the priestly functions of Christ. But Hebrews teaches in part by contrast, and whereas the Israelite had to bring a fresh sin offering every time he sinned, because it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins, atonement for us is based upon the one great sacrifice which in fact accomplished what these typical offerings were powerless to effect. And yet, I repeat, the need of atonement is deeper in our case than it was with the Israelite, and were it not for the work of our great high priest in the presence of God, our sins as Christians would preclude our ever entering that holy presence during all our life on earth. If a citizen be guilty of a crime, his conviction and sentence will dispose of the judicial question raised by his offense, and yet if he formerly enjoyed the right of entrée at the palace, nothing short of a royal pardon will restore to him that privilege. This parable may serve to illustrate one aspect of the truth here in question. Although the believer has vicariously suffered the judicial consequences of his sin, that sin would nonetheless bar his ever again approaching God, were it not that by confession and the atoning work of Christ he obtains forgiveness. But even though a citizen may have an acknowledged right to appear at court, he may not enter the royal presence mud-splashed or travel-soiled, and wilderness defilement, even though contracted innocently, precluded the Israelite from entering the sacred enclosure. And for this also there was full provision. But no special sin offering was needed. The unclean person was purged, first by being sprinkled with the water of purification, water that owed its efficacy to the great sin offering, and then by bathing his entire body. The ritual is given in detail in Numbers 19. The victim was burned to ashes. The ashes were preserved, and water that had flowed over them availed to cleanse. A sin required bloodshedding, defilement was purged by this water, Hebrews 9 verse 13. And, as we have seen, the bloodshedding was the act of the man who sinned, so here, no priest was needed, any clean person could perform the rite, Numbers 19.18, thus indicating that the sprinkling and the washing are not the work of Christ for us, but indicate our own responsibility to seek the restoration of communion with God by faith and repentance. This typical ordinance of the water of purification, though ignored in our theology, fills an important place in the teaching of Scripture. It is the keynote of the great prophecy of Ezekiel 36, 37, which looms so large in Jewish hopes a prophecy Nicodemus' ignorance of which evoked the Lord's indignant rebuke, Art thou a teacher of Israel and knowest not these things? John 3 verse 10 Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean, is the promise of the 25th verse of chapter 36, addressed to the earthly people. But though gathered out of all countries and brought into their own land, verse 24, they are likened in the next chapter to dry bones lying on the ground. And then follows the great. Regeneration, come, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, and the Spirit of God enters into them, and they live, verses 9, 10, 14.
This is the birth of water and the spirit, ignorance of which on the part of a rabbi of the Sanhedrin was as shameful as it would be for a Christian teacher not to recognize an allusion to the Nicodemus sermon. And in its application to ourselves, this is the Lautran of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost of Titus 3 verse 5. The word regeneration occurs only once again in the New Testament, namely in Matthew 19 verse 25 where the Lord uses it with reference to the fulfillment of this very prophecy of Ezekiel 36-37. And the only other mention of the Lautran explains its symbolic meaning. I refer to Ephesians 5 verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it, the church, with the Lautran of water, by the word. For whether it be a question of salvation for an individual sinner, or of the national regeneration of Israel, the blessing depends upon the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, and the work of the Holy Spirit. But the great bloodshedding is past, Calvary is never to be repeated, and it is only by the living and eternally abiding Word of God, ministered by the Holy Spirit, that sinners are born again. 1 Peter 1 verse 23 And as it was by recourse to the water of purification that the Israelite proved the continuing efficacy of the sin offering to purge him from defilement, so is it with us. But we have the reality of which the water was only a type, and by constant recourse to the word of God, and by the repentance which that word produces in us, we prove the efficacy of the death of Christ to maintain us in the position of acceptance and access to God, which redemption gives us. When a Christian whose secular pursuits are uncongenial to the spiritual life turns away from them to acts of worship or of service, he can appreciate the words of the exhortation, let us draw near, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. But the exhortation adds, and our bodies washed with pure water. Without the sprinkling of the water of purification, the bath would be unavailing, and to resort to the sprinkling while neglecting the bath would be to appeal to the atoning work of Christ without turning away from evil. For such is the figurative meaning of washing in Scripture. It signifies only and always practical purity. To read baptism into the passage is to fritter away its force and meaning, for it relates to the privileges and responsibilities of the Christian life, and not to the position accorded to the sinner on his coming to Christ for salvation. And more than this, such a perversion of the text implies the confounding of Christian baptism with the pagan rite of the Eleusinian mysteries. 5. 1. Religion and Piety The great men who framed the service book knew the English language. In the popular sense of the word, the Scots used to be the most religious people in the world, but when Archbishop Laud visited Scotland he was shocked to find there was no religion there, no religion at all that I could see which grieved me much. And in his N.T. Synonyms, Archbishop Trench avers, with reference to James 1 verse 27, that Christianity is not a religion, but, to spare the feelings of his readers, he uses the Greek word. 2. Prosecomai occurs in Hebrews 4 verse 16, 7 verse 25, 10 verses 1 and 22, 11 verse 6, and 12 18, 22. A different word of like meaning is used 719. 3. The word is alaskamai. It occurs only here and in Luke 18 verse 13, but in the Greek Bible it represents the Hebrew verb which our translators render to make atonement. The death of Christ is so commonly spoken of as the atonement that to object to this use of the word would savor of pedantry. But in scripture making atonement is priestly work following and based upon a sacrificial death. 4. The word rendered washing in these two passages is a noun, not a verb. The RV marginal note suggests a false exegesis, for lautran is not the Greek Bible word for labor. 
In the only passage where the LXX uses it doctrinally, Ecclesiasticus 31:25, it refers to the water of purification of Numbers 19. 5. The question before us is how the simple baptism of the New Testament, administered to those who professed belief in Christ, as an acknowledgement by them of submission to his lordship over them and their identification with him in death, was supplanted in the cult of the historic church by a mystic rite by which the sinner is cleansed from sin and, as Augustine has it, born of the bowels of the church. Here is the solution of the problem. This brief notice of the Eleusinian mysteries has been given almost entirely in borrowed words, Professor. Sir W. Cranzy, lest any should suppose the facts are misstated for a purpose. And in the sequel, for the same reason, the language of another shall be followed still more closely. The reference here is to the Hibbert Lectures, 1838, by Dr. Hatch of Oxford. That great book gives overwhelming proof that the baptism of the historic church is purely pagan, derived from the Eleusinian mysteries, not merely as regards its main characteristics as a labor of regeneration and soul-cleansing but as to all its details and even its terminology. The present author's book from which the above sentences are quoted contains lengthy extracts from Hatch and discusses the whole question, the Buddha of Christendom reissued in 1908 under the title of the Bible or the Church. Show less.